Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Welcome to Documents in Detail. Documents in Detail is teachingamericanhistory.org's new webinar series. In each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit based at, at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a video to request uh, sorry, with a link, rather, to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us think about the topics of this year's webinars, we're drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database available to all of you at TAH.org. You can participate in this evening's discussion simply by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. I will be paying attention to those, uh, those questions and, uh, and chiming in with them when I have to see an opportunity. The subject of today's program is Elizabeth Cady Stanton's address delivered at Seneca Falls. And to help discuss it tonight are Dr. Natalie Taylor, Associate Professor of Political Science at Skidmore College, and Dr. Emily Hess, Visiting Assistant Professor of History at Ashland University. Doctors Hess and Taylor, welcome. Uh, let me start with a, uh, a very straightforward question. What is so important about this document? Dr. Taylor, would you like to field that first? Okay, um, I'm happy to. Um, thanks for including me in the webinar. Um, this is my first go around, so hopefully the other participants will uh, be forgiving as I get used to the technology. Um, I, um, I, well, maybe I can start uh, address that question by telling you a little bit about how I place it into a course, and so that um, you can see um, how I think it's important in the course of American political development. So um, I do teach political philosophy, um, including American political thought at at Skidmore and. Um, in the MAG program, I teach uh, the course on the revolution and a, another course on uh, reform and gender. And so um, in the course on American political thought, I always included Elizabeth Cady Stanton as a way to demonstrate to the students that um, she's really an ex as an example of American liberalism. Uh, so I, I think many of you um, may have been familiar with or have seen in preparation for the webinar, her Declaration of Sentiments, which is based on the Declaration of Independence. And so I uh, show the students, it's it's not too hard, that this is um, an, a, just a, another version of in which she will use the expansion of rights, um, relying on the principles of dec the Declaration of Equality, Freedom, and the kind of personal sovereignty that's distinctive of, of liberalism. So in, um, in this telling of the story, um, she's not very radical at all. She's, she's merely expanding rights and liberties that are um, part of the American tradition. And um, so I think in that respect, um, she helps to, to show us that the, the rights that we enjoy as, as human beings are, are, are similar for all of us. Um, I also use it in my feminist political thought class in a little bit different way, um, and maybe this is um, more yeah. an answer to your question because the first part is like, well, she's not that important after all because it's just she's just like any other American liberal. Um, but she also shows us the limits of American liberalism. 
And I think we see in some of the documents that um, have been prepared for this evening, the New York legislature speech, but also um, the speech at Seneca Falls, where uh, she can't quite uh, forget the attachments that women have to husbands and children. And so uh, she helps us to think about uh, liberalism and, and how it may not capture the, the complexity of the human condition. Professor Hess. Yeah, I I actually I'm going to completely disagree with Dr. <laughs> Taylor, which that's good because if we agreed this might be too short of a discussion. Yeah, um, we'd be done in but I, I also I also think that's the beauty of having two disciplines come together for a webinar that um, from her perspective it isn't uh, all that radical, but being a historian in the way in which I teach and, and use this document in my class, I think she's extraordinarily radical, not necessarily because of her ideology. Um, so I, I agree with Dr. Taylor in that her ideology is, is that of, of being a liberal and of liberalism, but the fact that you get this from a woman, right, a, a white woman in the 19th century and in the same way that what Betty Friedan did for the 20th century, right, and, and puts words to these problems that maybe a number of individuals experience and struggle with and suffer from. You have Elizabeth Cady Stanton as her predecessor in the 1800s in uh, being emboldened enough and courageous enough to uh, call this for what it is and to suggest her frustration with the um, traditional gender roles and the separation of spheres and this idea that because I have this particular anatomy that this is going to define what I do for the rest of my life. Um, and I really think she starts to pick at some of the commonly held beliefs that nobody really questions uh, as we see in the address delivered at Seneca Falls of male superiority, whether that be physical or intellectual or moral. Um, you know, she really breaks that down. And I think the fact that she's even able to give an address like this in 1848 is just uh, astounding. And so I, I would say it's radical in that sense. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is the, uh, I would argue that she's the intellectual founder of the women's rights movement, um, as far as not only in uh, what she thinks, because I think maybe uh, Abigail Adams would, would nod with her uh, in certain aspects, but she actually puts words to it and has demands from it and doesn't use her husband and speak through her husband, right, and say, represent me in Congress, but instead, why do I need someone to represent me? Why do I need to be an appendage to someone? Why can't I be my own being? So Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and I, I don't necessarily want to say that she is a feminist, but that, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but I think she is one of the first to articulate the idea of individualism. Yeah, it, 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 I think it is a, a, a first for these documents and detail webinars that the uh, our, our two participants uh, so fundamentally disagree right off the bat. So I would like to uh, I'd like to hear Professor Taylor uh, uh, respond to that. Um, well, I I, th I think I would um, say the reason that we look like we disagree is because the ideas are coming, are the, the ideas themselves aren't radical, right? They are, as Jefferson said, the expression of the American mind. They've been around for, you know, uh, close to, you know, 75 years or so at this point. What's radical about it, the right way it, it looks like it's, and, and this is that it comes from a woman. Um, and so I think in, in that way, I, I, you know, I'm, you know, we'll we'll give Elizabeth Cady Stanton her due. She certainly had the gumption to do um, what hadn't been done. But also, um, I, I don't think it's merely a matter of of screwing up the courage. She had, you know, the kind of legal training through her father that um, helped her to prepare to make those kinds of arguments. And so it's she is really very steeped in the the um, legal practices in in the United States. Um, at, by the time that she starts to become involved in, in women's suffrage. Um, and, and so there is uh, an element in her thought that I think is, is, is a strain in all sort of feminist yeah. thinking. On the one hand, it, it, it requires a nod to the individual, a nod, you know, an expectation of equality and agency of the individual. But then, as I think uh, Dr. Hess is bringing out that there is a way in which she articulates the um, the kind of uh, sort of 
systematic <clears throat> oppression that is um, at work on women in the 19th century. She sees it, and she probably, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear um, Dr. Hess talk about this. I think she probably gets that from Garrison, that kind of, uh, you know, kind of institutional analysis um, that she'll bring to bear on marriage and the family and so on. Dr. Dr. Hess, would you like to respond, and then we can get to some uh, some additional questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Dr. Taylor and I actually, you know, do certainly agree um, on on the overarching, and she raised a good point when uh, when Elizabeth Katie Stanton or Elizabeth Katie was growing up, she always hung out in her father's law office, and up until a certain age, she was able to get the same sort of education as her brothers uh, because you know it was considered okay because they were fa um, fairly well off and had tutors, but it got to a certain point where uh, her brother's education departed from hers and they were able to continue and, and she was just kind of in this place where she didn't really know what to do and had to go to a, uh, an all girls school and college and that was very frustrating for her. But she would hide out in her father's law office because her, uh, her mother was the strict disciplinarian and so she just always run to dad and was kind of a um, daddy's girl and she'd hide under the desk and there's this one story that she remembers of a woman um, whose uh, husband had passed and she was financially struggling and the property had went to another male in the family and there was really no legal recourse for her that no matter how well you know the law uh, the law simply did not have anything available uh, for women in, in that regard as far as solutions goes. And Elizabeth Cady remembers, you know, going to the law books and, and taking scissors and cutting out the portions of the law that would have excluded her from being able to receive, right, the appropriate benefits that, that she believed that she deserved. And so uh, early on, she has this idealism, but as Dr. Taylor mentions, once she goes to school, she then ends up going to her cousin's house um, in upstate New York, who is a very well-known reformer, Garrett Smith, and hangs out with various abolitionists and rubs shoulders with um, these very religious figures and um, utopian reformers. And I, she certainly is inspired, I think, by her, her environment. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with all that. Well, uh, we have a, a few questions from participants, but I, I, first I would like to uh, uh, exercise my right as uh, as moderator to ask one of my own. Clearly, Stanton believes in uh, uh, equality of rights for men and women. Does she believe that there are any fundamental differences between men and women? Well, I I, I feel like this is the the question that animates my career, <laughs> um, and I, I I started to to get to this. Uh, a little bit with respect to uh, how the limits of liberalism, uh, you know, liberalism and the kind of li liberalism I think that is articulated in uh, the Declaration of Sentiments um, and, and her other documents, uh, they, they do make a demand for equality, but that's the challenge. How do you create equality and under what conditions uh, do you do that? with human beings that are, are so different. And so, uh, you know, biologically different, which, uh, you know, potentially I think um, in the speech at, in the New York legislature, she comes pretty close to saying that um, that the, the biological differences make a, a moral uh, imperative on women. And so uh, that's sort of the, the trick of, of, I think, expanding rights for women and we'll we'll see how I think Emily's um, exactly right that she sets the course for feminism not just in the uh, mid uh, 19th century but even today um, this demand for equality and gender equality that has come to the point where I, I would say that uh, this conversation about the moral character of, of women and their moral responsibilities has sort of dropped out. Um, but it's it's still there in in many of uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's speeches, including the ones that we have today. Professor yeah. Hess, do you yeah. can you get away on this? Um, I I think if if a lady, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, if we not if she were here, but if we went back to 1848 or 1850 and we were to pose this question to her, I think she'd say we'll never know, 
we'll never know until women have the same access, the same, in the same way that Frederick Douglass, uh, 1865, 1866, says, of course the black man's inferior. We haven't had opportunities for education. We haven't been able to engage in the body politic. We haven't had X, Y, Z. Um, I think in the address delivered at Seneca Falls, Elizabeth Cady Stanton talks about the many advantages that men have had in society. And so, of course, it looks like uh, on the face of it, women are the weaker sex. And so we won't necessarily be able to determine if there's any distinction or difference um, until all of these institutions and rights are equal for all. Now, with that being said, uh, she certainly is no Catherine Beecher, right? Catherine Beecher would say that women are different and women are distinct and they are naturally more moral and more pious and more, and some reformers later on, not her, but others around the progressive era will say we are distinct, we are different, we are more moral, and so because of that, we deserve the vote, right? Catherine Beecher won't go there, but many of these individuals, whether they believe in difference or not, will try to get to the same destination of equal rights. But I think Elizabeth Cady Stanton says, we deserve equal rights uh, because we are human, not because we are different. Uh, all right, thanks. Can I, can I add something, sure. John? Um, I, I think that um, better than other thinkers, uh, even uh, later thinkers, as, as Dr. Hess mentioned in the course of the progressive era and more contemporary thinkers um, in the course of the 20th century, I think better than most, uh, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is um, she lets those two principles of equality and difference live next to each other. And so when she is making an argument for, uh, you know, the, the vote or for property rights or changes in marriage laws, she does it on very um, Lockean grounds, right? All of the arguments that we would be used to. Uh, but then she also introduces the necessity um, for women to have the vote on moral grounds, in part for the sake of bettering the political community in, in the way that you know, Wollstonecraft and, and others before Elizabeth Cady Stanton make, but also for the part of um, bettering their own conditions, right? That it's the drunks that have to, that women have to protect themselves from and um, other other things that make the uh, women vulnerable. And so um, the tension does not seem to be as poignant as it is in, in other, between equality and differences. I think um, it might be with others. I think she, she uh, lets those sort of sit next to each other in ways that um, are, are productive. Okay. Well, let's go to a question from, uh, from one of our, uh, our listeners. Uh, Billy Gallagher notes both in the address as well as Solitude of Self uh, an anti-Catholic theme. Could uh, either or preferably both of you speak on that and, and suggest what motivates her uh, in, in, in being uh, uh, anti-Catholic perhaps? I can't speak specifically to her being anti-Catholic uh, necessarily. I, I don't remember where it was in the the address delivered at Seneca Falls. I do remember a little bit in Solitude of Self, but um, later on in her life, let me preface it with this: uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton does does not tiptoe. She does not walk on eggshells. She is not concerned about filtering or censoring herself. And so, whether this was something that was passed down, right, in this kind of familial thing that she inherited from you know her father, or um, was Catholics were somehow instrumental in forbidding women the right to vote. Uh, you know, I, I'm not necessarily sure, but it doesn't surprise me that she uh, may slip from time to time about discussing various groups and what she thinks of them. Uh, just one side note, when there is a discussion um, in the American Equal Rights Association in 1869 about uh, whether women should be included in the 15th Amendment or not, you have abolitionists and people like Frederick Douglass um, suggesting that it's the Negro's hour and um, uh, and women should step back and wait uh, because it's more politically expedient for at least a portion of this population that was disenfranchised to get the right to vote, that Stanton spirals, 
And she starts to do this anti-immigrant, anti-black rhetoric that, and I quote, Sambo, right, or the drunk Irishman should never have the right to vote before an intelligent, moral white woman. So I, I don't know if, if part of that comes from her disgust maybe for uh, traditional roles within Catholic families or simply anti-immigrant, anti, a little bit residue from know-nothingism, uh, but that, that's my knee-jerk reaction to that question. Okay. Yeah, my uh, reaction is, is speculative too. Um, you know, one, there's, uh, I guess, the, the general prejudice against Catholicism in the United States at this time, and it has uh, a lot to do with, you know, the the way in which it's it's hier hierarchical in a way that's considered uh, contrary to the uh, American republicanism. So I, I think uh, the that anti-Catholicism um, probably has uh, a pretty broad and um, you know sort of influence, and that. Uh, as, as Emily said, she she just speaks a little more clearly than others might on on what her prejudices are in in all sorts of ways, as we as as Doctor has just mentioned. Okay. Uh, Larry Fata asks um, a question about uh, Lucretia Mott. Uh, I'm curious as to how much of Stanton's writing was a solo endeavor and how much she worked with Mott. I was under the impression that Mott also worked on the Declaration of Sentiments. Could you comment? Yeah. Um, so, uh, first of all, Lucretia Mott, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton has a hardcore girl crush on Lucretia Mott. Like, just <laughs> thinks that she is the best, that her mentor, her just wants to be just like her. When she met her at the anti-slavery, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton goes to London to the World Anti-Slavery Convention with her husband for their honeymoon. How romantic. And... <laughs> meets Lucretia Mott there, and she's just wowed by this woman's conviction, right, that she doesn't serve sugar at her table, and she doesn't wear cotton, and, you know, nothing from the institution of slavery, and is really, truly mesmerized and inspired. Um, Mott's supposed to give a speech there. She's not able to. They're supposed to sit behind a curtain, right, and then the light bulb goes off, like, maybe this is a problem for us, too. <laughs> so, they, you know, they go home, and years pass, et cetera, et cetera, um, and Lucretia Mott certainly does help. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, Stanton is the primary author of the Declaration of Sentiments, but that's certainly not without the inspiration, influence, encouragement of Mott. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to go as far as to say, you know, if Mott was not there, Stanton wouldn't be either, but she was instrumental in her formation as a reformer. Okay. Uh, anything more on that, Professor Taylor? No, I, I would not have um, explained it so well, uh, the influence. I, I guess one of the, uh, maybe just a small point that I would add is that, uh, and I think the reason why we do generally remember the uh, the address and also the declaration um, with Elizabeth Cady Stanton instead of Lucretia Mott is she was the one that really pushed for including suffrage yeah. uh, when others were a, a little bit more timid and wanted to take a more incremental um, position and, and, and stick maybe to expanding property rights and, and laws relating to marriage. Um, she was the one that uh, had really pushed for the right to, uh, to vote to be included and um, and sort of saw that as as the way forward. So, I, I think in that respect, that's that's why we generally um, remember her associated with Seneca Falls, and and maybe someone like Lucretia Mott, who would have been you know, certainly influential and important in all the ways that um, Dr. Hess mentioned. But uh, she just didn't um, have that that gumption and that determination in the way that that Elizabeth Cady Stanton did. Um, let's let's talk about the the right to to vote a bit. Is yeah. this to use the the military analogy? Is this the bridge too far that perhaps doomed the rest of the message, at least in the short term? Um, y yes. Uh, I I mean I I would. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's husband leaves town, right? The the week <laughs> before this happens because he's like I'm not going to be associated with it, right? Enough's enough. Um, that you know he's willing to. You know, have her, you know, think big thoughts and, and read all the books and, you know, have all of the children. But uh, it, it was embarrassing to him 
to have his wife give this public address and then to go as far as to suggest suffrage as well. I mean, individual reformers that are at the Seneca Falls Convention are saying, Lizzie, you're going to make a mockery of this whole thing, right? Nobody will take us seriously. Like, like, let's at least, you know, take some baby steps here. And she just jumps in the deep end. There's no sticking the toe in the water. Uh, and this is the, one of the resolutions uh, that they could barely get people to vote for um, in uh, in the Declaration of Sentiment. So this, um, even those that believe that there's an inequality that exists, I, I'm not even sure they've spent the time to even think about whether the vote is the appropriate vehicle. It, it's not even something people have ruminated over. And for her, it seems like that's the answer to all of the problems. Mm. I, I'm a little bit more ambivalent. Um, I, I, I fault her husband for leaving town. That's that was not an appropriate response. Um, but uh, and, and I do appreciate that it was, um, a, you know, a radical proposition that scared some people off. Many of the people who um, initially signed on took it, took their um, support of that back. But um, I, I do think it sort of focused the movement in a way that it, it would not have been otherwise and and like i said i i do think it is the you know in, in a partial um fulfillment of the promise of the declaration and so the, to me there's a certain logic about it that you know uh, that i get from from elizabeth katie stanton herself uh and i i at this moment at least i i like that determination um i'm sure we'll we'll start talking about it at some point um how that uh, can be politically uh, sort of destructive, but at this moment, I'm I'm not sure that it is. Okay, uh, Cody Northrup asks: Elizabeth Cady Stanton spoke out against the Fifteenth Amendment for not giving women, including women, in its expansion of suffrage, instead giving the vote to quote lower orders unquote of men. Is it justifiable to say that the African American rights and women's rights movements have sabotaged each other? through American history in their individual quests for equality? Well, that, that's a, uh, if we have maybe the rest of the evening and do a shut-in and, you know, maybe <laughs> see the next eight hours, we, we could we could start to address that. But I I think the, the initial uh, response is, um, of course, maybe in certain ways, no. Yeah, there are times where I think the movement's have worked together and both Dr. Taylor and I have taught a class called the reform tradition in American history and talk about the ways in which uh, African Americans uh, fight for equality and women's fight for equality, uh, the way that they parallel and intersect and challenge one another. And uh, there are times where they benefit from one another. There are times that they inspire one another when women are fighting for the rights of African Americans and they realize they're sitting behind a curtain or when in the 1960s, a, a civil rights activist is asked, what's the best role for women in the movement, in the civil rights movement? He responds, prone, right? Uh, you know, in jest. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly think there are times where, where women respond to their, their lack of equality, even within reform movements. Um, but it does seem with the 15th Amendment, especially at this time, that Stanton um, and Susan B. Anthony, and not Lucy Stone, there are other women that, that have a, a different idea on this, but these two individuals are working from an environment of scarcity, right? And this idea that it, if, if they get it, if black men get the right to vote, that women never will, and we're not going to wait another generation. And so it, if it's, I'd like universal suffrage, but if it can't be universal, it better be us. Uh, so it, it gets, I think it gets weird. Uh, that's, Dr. Taylor can probably articulate it in a much more scholarly way, but it certainly gets weird. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah I think it, uh, well, in, in, um, in, in sort of ugly, uh, and or uglier, I should say. I mean, we can see already in the early 1850s that uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is making these claims on behalf of, of women who uh, have some degree of education and uh, and sort of moral standing against those who are, are sort of have moral failures or haven't reached the same status in the case of slaves and I think as she refers to as idiots and so that's off-putting and that's there all along and so 
um, it, it gets sort of ramped up around the debate about the 15th Amendment. And so I think that uh, what is puzzling is the idea of the, the sort of scarcity as if it, it just can't happen for both groups. And I would I would say I'm not quite sure how um, how her rhetoric harmed the her cause at the time. You know, I, you know, while my students uh, at Skidmore certainly, you know, can't abide that kind of talk. I don't have a sense of how her, and so I don't know, maybe Dr. Hess knows um, how her audience would have received that um, and if that undermined it. Well, I think part of it is uh, by the time that um, it becomes clear to Elizabeth Kitty Stanton that they're not going, A, they weren't, in, mail was introduced in the 14th Amendment, right? And that they're probably not going to be included in the 15th Amendment, but they start this Kansas campaign and their uh, push for white, uh, women's suffrage is fueled by Southern Democrats and by some yeah. of the most racist individuals in the nation because so they're, you know, I mean, who knows if they even believe it, but that's who's funding their campaign. And their suggestion is, you know, radical Republicans are wanting to give African Americans the right to vote to change the constituency. We know how we can remedy that, give white women the right to vote, and then that'll, you know, offset. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I really think that as far as principles go, she those become eroded so that she can just get to her goal in whatever vehicle uh, possible. She, I don't think she's really upholding what she truly believes. Um, On the other hand, it, might it might it not be the case that any time the, uh, the 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 scope of suffrage is expanded? it immediately raises the question of, if this group can, why not this group? And in that way, in a very indirect sense, mm -hmm. the movements assist one another. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't sure. say that, right? What she says is, there's no reason why they should have the right before us. Like, it, it becomes this, and this is, I'm getting worked up here. This is why I think she's very garrison as far as the women's rights movement go, because she, she can't just take a second and say, okay, so African-Americans have the right, which means we should all have the right, and how beautiful is this? The democracy is expanding for all. Instead, I think she just, uh, she wants to speak her truth, and she wants people to hear it, and whether that does anything for her cause or not is kind of a, a, I mean, on her deathbed, you know, she says to her daughter, and these are my words, like, I wish I knew when to shut my mouth. Right, like that, that's that, that, those are her final. Oh, we words. all do, right? <laughs> I mean, and of course, yeah, we, of course, we all. I mean, I think that every time I leave one of my classes, but yeah, <laughs> I'm also not, you know, trying to bring an amendment, uh, at least at this moment. But if you guys are willing to vote for me, no, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't, um, I don't have sympathy, obviously, for the uh, sort of racist and prejudicial language that she used. But I am trying to think about the way in which she does feel desperate, like this is her yeah. chance. And um, somewhere along the line, I read in a letter, maybe I don't, I can't place it now. But the observation that um, you know, women don't—they um, do find to to a degree common cause with um, African Americans and um, with abolitionists, but. By and large, they don't have the champions that other people do, and so um, maybe from a pragmatic, um, and, you know, and I don't want to be a total apologist from a, a, but from a pragmatic stance, so she's thinking, you know, if if our, you know, the one group that's, you know, willing to sort of stand with us um, is is going to get the right to vote, that political momentum will be gone, and then where will we be? Hmm. Um, and so uh, it, it may be that she has good reason to see that this is, uh, that the momentum is just gonna to, uh, to, you know, die out over the next, well, it turns out to be the next, uh, you know, 50 some years. And I, I would agree with Dr. Taylor because the, I forget which reformer it was, but, you know, said to Stanton that um, one issue per generation, right? He's like, first, yeah. First it's black suffrage, then it's prohibition, and then it will be women's suffrage. <laughs> when Stan hears that, she just kind of loses her mind momentarily, <laughs> right? Like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> so. Well, and, and then I'm, I'm reminded of, um, this wasn't uh, Stanton who was in this exchange, it was Susan B. Anthony. She uh, was got in that exchange that, uh, with 
uh, Frederick Douglass and yeah. you know his justification was well when you can walk down the street without being the fear of violence then you know then you might be able to make a demand that um, is more compelling and Stanton's quip was well but still you wouldn't trade places with me and you know she kind of was met with some silence so um, there's a way in which women's circumstances were more degraded and you know that well and then i think susan b anthony also says what about black women right and then yeah. it's like oh and D douglas actually struggles with that a little bit right like uh yeah well <laughs> you know and he's, he's not as articulate or eloquent as we know douglas to usually be so. well since you mentioned susan b anthony uh, larry fada has asked where does she fit into all of this and why is she why does she tend to be more remembered in American history than uh, Lucretia Mott or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, uh, do you mind if I jump in? No, I, I've been monopolizing. Go ahead. Oh, no, I haven't felt that way at all. Okay, good. Uh, well, yeah, it is very hard to talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton without talking about Susan B. Anthony. They uh, were were friends for, you know, most of their lifetimes for, you know, a half a century. And uh, they, they, uh, Susan B. Anthony did not uh, attend the Seneca Falls Convention. They met a, a little, maybe three or four years later than that. They were introduced uh, by Amelia Bloomer. Um, and at the time, Susan B. Anthony was working in the temperance movement. And so uh, they, uh, they met and uh, she had a profound influence on, on her. Uh, she, uh, excuse me, Susan B. Anthony had a profound influence on Stanton. Uh, she she wrote that the intense earnestness and the religious enthusiasm of this great souled woman, um, it, it said it, it, it made her feel the power of the convert. And it sort of goaded her forward. So in, in that way, I think Susan B. Anthony was very inspiring to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, and, it, it, you know, certainly their relationship had, was fraught at moments. Um, I think the reason that she is is remembered, and this is where I'm hoping for some pushback from Dr. Hess, but I'm not sure I'm going to get it. <laughs> um, I think she was just a better politician. Um, and uh, she seemed to be able to uh, adjust her message and her demeanor and and sort of uh, and in uh, sort of speak to the times in the way that I don't think Elizabeth Cady Stanton was able to do so. And so by the time, I think she, you know, made some tough choices. Uh, uh, what we just mentioned, uh, African American women. Uh, she knew that she had to keep a hold of those Southern uh, supporters, and so she did not allow African American women to join uh, the the suffrage association. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was a pragmatic choice, and perhaps not the morally correct one. Um, but she she made that decision. Uh, then she was able to sort of also refashion herself as, you know, as we got closer and closer to suffrage um, in the early part of the 20th century, as as a, a sort of um, disarming aunt. She was referred to as Aunt Susan to the next generation of of suffragettes. And so, she she was in in and many ways i think uh sort of politically more savvy and then also um again she was uh, not as confrontational and and her demeanor was was a little bit easier to to like maybe okay uh here's a question oh, oh can, can ahead, i ahead. just add that very quickly i'm sorry <laughs> I like yeah i just i like that question um just one one other thing i, I would completely agree with everything that uh, dr taylor said about just knowing, um, knowing when to keep your mouth shut, right? Knowing when to nod, <laughs> to knowing when to nod and, and smile, like even though you don't necessarily agree, and just kind of like bite your tongue and you know hit somebody underneath the table. But the other thing to remember is that Anthony is, uh, she's the image of the women's rights movement, right? Stanton is married and has all of these children, and you know her her husband is a politician and will, you know, is, is traveling a lot and will come home. And it always seems like every time he comes home, she always is pregnant. And, you know, by the sixth child, she's writing to Anthony and is like, I have these big plans for the movement, but I can't go anywhere. And so she's, uh, you know, Stanton's writing everything, but Anthony's delivering everything. 
And so one of the reasons why I think Anthony is, is so renowned and, and hailed as, you know, the woman of, of the women's rights movement and, and pushing for the right to vote is that she's able to travel. She, she has that mobility where, uh, you know, Stanton, for as radical as she was, uh, decided to have her children for a period of time be priority. Um, so I think that's an important thing to remember as well. But, you know, the other thing, going back to this prudence and, and politician, right about the time that the women's rights movement is gaining more momentum later uh, in the late 1800s, uh, and, and they're trying to make this seem like a mainstream idea, Elizabeth Cady Stanton publishes the woman's Bible, right? <laughs> publishes the Bible from a feminist perspective and like takes it like she just sabotages everything. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm too harsh, but uh, Anthony is much more palatable for mainstream and wants to make political alliances. Um, yeah, mm. just, she's exhausting. So um, I think that kind of underlines your first question about this, this question of equality and difference. On the, on the face of it, you would think that Elizabeth Cady Stanton would have been the much more conventional um, the much more conventional feminist than the, which it seems like a contradiction, you know, as, as Dr. has said, she's married, she's got kids. Um, well, and Susan B. Anthony was the only one of the, um, that sort of cohort of women that were advocating for women's rights that didn't get married. And yet she was able to package herself as, as a more traditionally feminine yeah. woman in a way that was uh, kind of intuitive, I think, but um, effective. Okay. Uh, Katie Bradford has a, a question. In the Declaration of Sentiments, Stanton refers to moral beings only judging of others by themselves. Was she talking about men judging women, women judging men, or women judging women for fighting for more rights? Oh, a lot going on there. Could you repeat that? Dr. Sure, Dr. sure. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's it's a it's a little complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in the Declaration of Sentiments, and I suppose if I uh, if I had a minute, I could find the the reference. Yeah. Stanton talks about moral beings only judging of others by themselves, so that is by their own standards. Yeah. Is she talking about men judging women, women judging men? Or women judging women for fighting for more rights. I feel like I'm on a, a game show where it's like, you know, it's like A, B, C, or C. But I, I think what she's referencing, if you look at the intro of the address delivered at Seneca Falls, obviously a different document, but she talks about um, a little bit about this. And she says, I should feel exceedingly diffident to appear before you at this time, having never spoken in public, were I not nerved by the sense of right and duty. Did I not feel the time it fully come for the question of women's wrongs to be laid before the public? Did I not believe that woman herself must do this work? For woman alone can understand the height, the depth, mm. the length, and the breadth of her own degradation. Man cannot speak for her because he has been educated to believe that she differs from him so materially. And I think just even the way in which she discusses the distinction of men and women there, that men cannot judge women. And uh, although she has no problem judging men right but that's also because of the the structure that's set up so i, I think when she's talking about that um men cannot speak for women um men cannot judge women based off of their lack of access and opportunity i, I think is, is right the yeah. yeah the following lines is he cannot judge of her thoughts feelings and opinions of his own so yeah. he um, in 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 the address she yeah, she does talk like that and 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 suggest that it's really because men have been socialized to believe that their that their situation is is the norm and that they they therefore cannot get beyond that that narrow scope. Right. But in the Declaration of Sentiments, she invokes this in a discussion of uh, infanticide, right? And that and that that um, the reason why we need women that, that women need to be tried by their peers, that is, other women is because a man can never understand uh, the kind of emotions that might lead a woman actually to kill her own child. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, the I, game show version of our answer. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry we're not doing Katie's question justice. because, um, uh, But uh, I, I think that, so we should rule out that it's certainly not men judging women. That 
I think is is true by both of what you said. I'm tempted to to suggest, and maybe this is as a consequence of I'm being too much informed by the solitude of self, that she's really looking for um, individuals, certainly women, but also men, I think, to be their own moral compass and to take the kind of re responsibility to judge for themselves. And and um, and not in a kind of relativistic way, right? She really wants to um, them to, you know, turn the hairy eyeball on themselves. Okay. Uh, let's see. Here's a, a, another question by Brian Gallagher. Um, how did the press receive Stanton's speech of 1848? Uh, was was it well covered? Uh, any any noteworthy anecdotes about this? Well, I, I think that's. Um... I mean, I, I do love a good anecdote. I'm sorry, I can't, uh, I can't provide any of those. But uh, from what I understand, post Seneca Falls Convention, you know, the one of the the debates. I mean, it's a minor debate, but one of the debates surrounding this is if it doesn't really get to anyone else, how significant is it, right? I mean, if there isn't the press, and if there isn't, if it's just 200 people that gathered in Seneca Falls, New York, uh, you know, what does it really matter all that much? Uh, you know, one of the calls for the Declaration of Sentiments and the address is that there will be multiple meetings like this throughout the nation. And this was covered, but it wasn't covered in a way that uh, of, of great scandal or interest or it didn't sweep the nation from my understanding. Mm -hmm. um, Professor Taylor? Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, it, it, so, uh, and, and and I don't know anything about how the address itself was received. I think the address itself is a little bit more pleasing to um, other arguments for women's rights or compatible with it than the the, the Declaration of Sentiments is. Um, you get more of the language, I think, about the, the moral authority of women in that address. Um, but I, I simply just don't know how the address itself was received. Um, one of the uh, uh, listeners is, uh, is, is asked about the relationship between um, uh, the abolitionist movement and, uh, and, the, and the movement for women's rights. Mm -hmm. uh, it, obviously, there's a lot that could be said here, but it seems to me that one striking difference between the two is one could be very anti-slavery, even abolitionist, and still believe that blacks were fundamentally inferior. Uh, it doesn't strike me that such a that such an attitude is possible. If you believe in women's rights, you have to accept you have to accept equality. Is that would I be off base on that? Uh, I I would say that I I understand where you're coming from uh, and and why you might get to that conclusion, but I, I think of certain female activists who are fighting for. A certain, maybe not full equality, but uh, more rights, and they will base it off the idea that they are different. Um, you know, so because they're more moral and because they're more righteous, uh, why why wouldn't they have a say in what's going on in government? And what is the purpose of rearing your children uh, is as being the pious one in the household to simply let them wander the streets in this den of vice and corruption? And so uh, I think there's the possibility of that, but I agree with you that. For the most part, if you're an advocate of women's rights, of, of full political and civil equality, that um, yeah, it, it's not it's not the same. It's apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. Maybe Professor Dr. Taylor can yeah. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Well, yeah, that that's my sense of it too. You don't. Um, I guess I'm thinking a lot about Lincoln's argument for the end of slavery. And how he tries to walk that sort of middle ground, um, you know, without being, um, you know, an abolitionist, uh, you know, in that that famous line where he says, you know, just because I don't want to, I I don't want to enslave an African Amer a, a woman doesn't mean I want to marry her, right? You know, so there's something, there's a, a sort of legal or political status of equality that doesn't uh, demand. Uh, the sort of full-blown recognition that we might see in other ways. And you don't really hear anything, those sorts of arguments, um, either from women or or other men that I can think of that would try to um, temper the argument for suffrage uh, that, that you get from Elizabeth Cady Stanton. 
And so um, it, it may be because of the, the, the women who are making the argument that they do have sort of a moral ground to stand on and that um, is rhetorically, I think, maybe more compelling, at least for a time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead. Please, please continue. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, it, it's so much different with the institution of slavery, right? Because I think if women were enslaved, it would be that same thing where just because you're opposed, you can be opposed to something. And Frederick Douglass talks about the distinction between justice and benevolence, right? So you can feel bad for somebody. And I think that's what Garrison did too often is that he made people feel bad for slaves, um, but not feel this depth of injustice, right? So while they can be freed and you want them to be free because you just feel bad as you know if you watch that awful um save the cats commercial with sarah mclaughlin playing in the background which is all the sad cats who are like dying you know it's like give 50 cents a day well sure yeah I, I don't want maybe i don't want cats to die but i certainly don't want them sitting beside me in a classroom or marrying them or but that, that was the way in which people approached um slavery and african-americans many still believe that they were subhuman they shouldn't be enslaved, but I'm not sure they have the same capacity as me. So, um, you know, that that doesn't translate as well when you start talking about women, because women aren't enslaved. I mean, they may use the rhetoric that they're being enslaved by their man and not having voice or choice, but there isn't that same comparison. I, I don't. Yeah, Elizabeth Cady Stanton really tries to make it, and yeah. um, she does lay out the, the sort of, um, you know, formal sort of measurements of slavery, right? The inability to hold property and so on and and uh, the loss of control over children and all of those sorts of things that in the abstract, so you would say, yeah, that kind of does sound like slavery. But then, you know, she is spending much of her life uh, in upstate New York in a relatively comfortable home um, with, you know, a husband who is, you know, maybe not the the greatest guy, um, as Dr. Hess has already pointed out, but, um, you know, he's, you know, he provides for his family and so on. And so uh, it's it's hard to feel that pity that we feel for the cats or the, or the slaves right. in, in a way to that we want to see their situation change. Their immediate circumstances don't seem to to be um, to be that all that terrible. What what about in terms of the the relationship between individuals? What's what sort of relationship, uh, if any, did Stanton have with Garrison, for example? Mm. I'm not familiar with uh, much interaction between the two, but that's not to suggest that there wasn't any. Um, I know that Elizabeth Kitty Stanton and Frederick Douglass um, right, uh, spent right. significant time together, and Douglass even stayed at her house once, which is why he said he was so hurt when he read in a copy of the revolution that Stanton called him a Sambo, right? And um, you, you use these these racial slurs um, to describe him. And so I, I think um, so much of Stanton's upbringing uh, and, and staying, being surrounded by reformers really helped to radicalize her and maybe be a little bit more outspoken. But I, I don't know of direct connections with Garrison. Dr. Taylor, do you? Um, I, I, I don't, um, but I, there was a time that, uh, and I don't know exactly what took Henry Stanton to Boston, but that he was, they were living in Boston for a short amount of time. And then during that time, her dinner table would be graced by some of the people you might expect to be, you know, swirling around Boston. And I think he, he, they might've met under those circumstances. Um, from what I understand, um, at least in those years uh, when she, you know, was was not as isolated. I don't know how many people have have been to Seneca Falls, but it, it it's at a distance um, from Albany and Syracuse, and uh, her home was even sort of isolated from the village. So if you think you've got six, seven kids, or however many she had, you're you're not getting to see too many people. Um, but you know, at those times when she, when that time when she was in in Boston and other places, she she was, uh, you know, kind of gregarious, from what I understand, in in ways that we maybe haven't brought out um, in our conversation about uh, her, you know, sort of single-minded determination and and her, you know, her kind of the uglier side of her character. 
um, she she did have that sort of sociability that um, would have brought her into um, contact with a lot of the the luminaries of the time, and I think Garrison must have been part of it. Certainly, um, as you mentioned earlier, her cousin uh, Garrett Smith would have also been another way in which she could have been met Garrison. Which, just a side note, weird trivia thing, did you know Garrett Smith helped pay for Jefferson Davis's bail? <laughs> I just read that today, which is just like blowing my mind. But anyways, that's a, it's just a little side note. <laughs> I need um, to read more on that. Well, speaking of, of social movements of the 19th century, to what extent did the women's rights movements inter movement intersect with the temperance movement? Well, I, 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 um, the temperance movement gave uh, us a Susan B. Anthony, so there was um, an intersection both with the people that were involved, but I also think that uh, at at a moment, um, you know, in the, I guess the early 1850s, the uh, and, and again, this is getting to be a common story. Women are are being excluded from speaking in public in temperance. Uh, at uh, temperance um, events, and so they want to form their own organizations. And uh, then uh, there was one instance in which uh, the the men had sort of mechanically or sort of politically uh, made it impossible for the women to to rise to office within their own association. And it kind of raises, as we might say today, their feminist consciousness. So I think there is a lot of going back and forth between the two. Um, as we've been saying, the the claim to participate in public life on uh, the sort of moral stature of women um, that would have also been, I mean, temperance would have been the the first and import, most important, I think, uh, cause for that. Okay. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. Would either of you care to make a closing statement as to a, what our listeners would? Uh, should remember about Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Oh, man. Dr. Taylor, I'll, I'll let you go first. <laughs> oh, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I, I guess um, I, I, um, I, I guess I want to, and I think this is going to be a challenge um, with the, the high school students. I have this challenge with my students in, um, at, at Skidmore is that they uh, very quickly and easily want to forget her because of her uh, the, uh, of her what is you know understood widely as racism today and the ways in which she um, had had like I said I think she's she's got those prejudices all along and they just sort of get amped up at you know at the political moment um, but I do you know go back to an earlier point where um, she was the woman um, who had the drive and the single-mindedness to pursue the the vote. And in, in doing that at Seneca Falls, I think she sets us on a course um, that, you know, I, I, I just don't know that it, when it would have come up, you know, retrospectively. And maybe this is what historians hate, <laughs> but I'm a political scientist. So I'm going to, you know, sort of, con you know, we're still going to have the Civil War, and the, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the moment when votes start to, for women, start to to gain momentum. And so, it it seems like she really gets that on the the agenda and keeps it on the agenda. Um, unfortunately, it's for longer than we would have liked. But um, so I I think that social movements need that kind of determination um, as much as they need someone like Susan B. Anthony who has sort of the political savvy to you know, try to to rough take the rough edges off of someone like Susan as uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yeah, I'll I'll uh, just very quickly. I'll for as much as I bashed her this this past hour, I do love um, talking about her, and I do greatly admire her. I mean, she um, she stays within the American tradition, as Dr. Taylor reminded us at the beginning of of this uh, webinar. And she really applies natural rights to sex inequality of the 19th century and the way in which she models the Declaration of Sentiments to the Declaration of Independence. Um, I, I think it's she's one of the most articulate uh, intellectual giants of that. I mean, she, she really is the brain of the women's rights movement. And um, for all the things that she 
um, maybe said that she shouldn't have, right? That she may have regretted on her deathbed. Whenever I uh, I teach Frederick Douglass and I, I ask um, them whether he's a statesman and is he prudent and is he this or is he that, I, I always have a student that reminds me that Douglass didn't have the luxury of prudence, you know, as, as some do. And so maybe if there's anything to remember about Stanton, that maybe she felt as though she did not have the luxury of prudence and uh, there wasn't time to walk on eggshells and to package this in a way that men could, you know, digest, but instead uh, to make the demand. So. All right. Well, we are about out of time. I want to thank both of our panelists, Dr. Hess and Dr. Taylor, for a terrific discussion. And uh, I would like to uh, to thank the, uh, the our participants for the, their questions. Just a reminder about the email you'll be receiving with a link for the certificate of participation. Um, if you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. These are also offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, a program that is uh, obviously near and dear to my heart. Uh, you can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. Uh, you can also help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you'll be receiving by email next week, to your colleagues as well as sharing it on social media. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, May 17th, when our subject will be George Washington's Farewell Address. And on that occasion, I'll be joined by Dr. Todd Estes of, uh, of Oakland University and Dr. Robert M.S. McDonald of the United States Military Academy at West Point. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted. We hope to see you back here on May 17th. Have a terrific evening, everyone. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.